In the twilight of their lives, a group of four unlikely friends discovers a shared passion for photos of grandchildren over liquid lunches and murder. Together, they form a club of amateur yet capable sleuths who can talk their way out of trouble and into any room. But when local police find a string of dead bodies around town, speculation turns to the group of golden gumshoes. Could one of the elderly analysts actually be the murderer? The name of the group? The Thursday Murder Club. The book is by Richard Osman, and you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get And this is Alexis. And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Alexis, it's good to see you. Always good to see you. Good to see your gorgeous face. I'm going to steal your question from week one of this season. Oh, boy. Or week two or whatever. What did you do for fun? What one thing did you do for fun this week? And what one thing did you do for self-care? I try... for self-care, I bought a new um, shampoo. I hope I didn't say that last week, but I bought a new <laughs> shampoo. Okay, cool. I, I purchased a new shampoo, actually a couple products, and I, I got to try them. I, I, did, I didn't wash my hair, but I purchased these new products so I could use no, and that's then do fine. a new, um, a new um, protective style. So, Do you want to tell us the that. names of the products? or? Um, I only remember. For one is called 4C only. Okay. 4C? Um, yep. 4C like only. Like our hair texture? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's pretty cool. And then for fun. I thought she was <laughs> going to say texture by um, Tracy Ellis Ross. I was going to say, girl, that ain't for you. <laughs> but 4C only, that's us. Okay. Mm-mm. That's me. Get into it. That's <laughs> what I be doing with the 4C and stuff. And then <laughs> what did you do for fun? What did I do for fun? Oh, you know, I, I, um, I want to learn how to be a photographer. So I took a picture and, um, I tried to take a picture in a, you know, I tried to make it snazzy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I did that. I practiced taking photos. That's all. Okay. I'm going to take a photo class. That's, that's something I'm interested in doing. Well, you know, you have a friend. Who is a photographer can definitely recommend some mentors if you're interested. I know. And I think my friend, <laughs> Kari, is so good at it. I just love it. Okay, anyway. One day, one okay. day, one day. I just got to take it one day at a time. For, yeah, so, no, that's cool. Yeah. So I just play around sometimes with some photos and see, see how it turns out. How about you, Kari? What did you do for fun? And what one thing did you do for self-care? I tried really hard to think of something I did this week for fun. And I um, I don't know, you guys. I really didn't do anything for fun. It's been a crazy busy week. Nothing mm-hmm. compared to yours. I'm I know sure you're still is. in the thick of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but for self-care, I did 
um, get back into my skincare routine. Hey. Yeah. And so I'm trying to like um, prepare 30 minutes every night just for my skin. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a big deal, though. Yeah. And then I put on some music. I have a dimmer in my bathroom. Uh-huh. So, you know, I um, shower with these oils and then get out and do this like five step routine on my face. Oh, for my. real, for real. I don't think it matters, but it's just the process of like touching your face and caring just for you. Uh-huh. That is good on the mental health, I think. It is. But tip. why is it that you think it's not doing anything for you? You know, I mean, you're going to look the way you look. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. No, but anyway, you use it. Yeah, some well, toner. we'll see. You know, if Jackie Aina's to be believed, I'm going to look 30 forever <laughs> so if i and could just pit, pa- you hit pause here <laughs> and never age again it'd be great but you we'll will see. no worries you will okay mm-hmm. i mean you already look 20 ish oh thank you so, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's not that far off so i'm slightly insulted let's move on <laughs> society says now it's time for society says where we share your comments listeners with the rest of our lit society alexis is there a comment you thought particularly lit this week yes yes i did <laughs> okay this one is from ups and downs underscore that's life okay i like it <laughs> and they said and they were responding to a question and they said i can't pick just one I just love you two and have missed you so much during your break. Isn't that the sweetest? That is. That's so sweet. Somebody missed us. (laughs) (laughs) What was that question? I did have a short survey on Instagram and I probably asked them which um, which segment of our show, because our our show is divided into like six segments, which is their favorite. So they didn't choose one. They just love the show. and, And we love that. That's really kind. Thank you so much. What was their name? Uh, ups and downs underscore that's a life love it thank you so much ups and downs and that's exactly mm-hmm. thank you and so Kari <laughs> what did you find did you find a comment that was lit tea yeah I did this one is actually from YouTube oh, what YouTube we get comments on the YouTubers <laughs> that's right <laughs> and <laughs> listeners you might remember that the first episode of every month this year We'll also have a video episode accompanying it uh, like last week, the Nickel Boys. So this is a comment we received on our Daisy Jones um, episode. How clever. So this comes from YouTube and it's from Dika G. And they say, love. Hey, Dika. Love that the episodes are now going to be on YouTube. Just listened on Spotify and now have y'all on my TV. Greetings from Qatar. Oh, what? They listening to us in Qatar, though? I mean, for real. We on somebody's TV. Right. In, in Qatar. Us. Who'd have known? Who'd have thought you it? believe that? No. Oh. So thank you so much, Dika G. We really appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Remember, yes, listeners, do. if you have a comment you'd like to share with the society, please uh, message us on social media. That's Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. Facebook, but we ain't never going to see it because we ain't never on there to tell you the truth. And you can find us Lit Society Pod everywhere. And we especially love this option. If you want to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review along with a comment about why you love your show, we might share your comment on the show. Thanks again. Thank so, you. So 
Let's move on to the theme of the week. Each week, readers, as you know, we choose a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. And this week, our theme is, are you ready, Alexis? Um, yeah. <laughs> the age-defying benefits of having older friends. Aww. Aww. The, the fortunate of us have golden friends, as we're going to call them, in our mm. lives. And, you mm. know, maybe there are grandparents. We'll include that. Aunties mm. or maybe a family friend. You know, it's always weird um, when I'm talking to a coworker about a friend and that friend is like 80. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just weird to describe it like, yeah, no, my friend, um, she lives in an assisted living community. <laughs> and she, she got jokes for days. <laughs> So this, this golden friend might be in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or beyond, but their spirit is young and vibrant. They mm -hmm. give us the best advice, mm -hmm. even when they're giving terrible advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a drop of wisdom in it that we can take out. Wait, so, <laughs> that might be like Lady Russell from Persuasion. I was Persuasion, thinking of right? Lady Russell from Persuasion. <laughs> But that was good advice, girl. Don't marry no broke man. Alexis, mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. you received amazing advice from a golden friend? If so, do tell. I, I did. Um, I was turning an age and um, and she was like, this is the best time of your life. And I was feeling some type of way. I didn't realize that I would get to that age and feel that way. And, and I was feeling some type of way. I didn't think I would, but I did just for a moment. And she was like, this is the best time of your life. I felt more confident at this time. And oh, yeah. you just enjoy it. Relax mm -hmm. and enjoy it. Don't put pressure on age. And I, I never felt myself to be kind of an age person. Like, I didn't care. You know, mm -hmm. it's not a big deal. But that really helped me. It just reminded me. It's just a number. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Benefits have you found from having friends much older than you, Alexis? Oh, like I overall. love it. Oh, I love it. And, and you know, they don't even have to be, um, they just can be older. So I've always enjoyed, um, I've always wanted to have an older sister. I have older mm -hmm. brothers and I've always wanted to have an older sister. So I just love talking to um, older people. They could be 20 years, they could be, 40 years older it doesn't matter I just love it I love having older friends because they have so much wisdom they can share so much advice and they you know they have experience they share recipes I can I tell you about a time where I invited um some friends over yeah I had a dinner I wanted to it was going to be my first time I was going to try to cook a turkey Mm -hmm. So I said, um, I'm going to cook a turkey, but then I'm just going to make it like a soul food dinner thing. And mm -hmm. it was my first time like cooking all these dishes minus cornbread. Because so you I didn't grow up on soul food. I have to tell the um, <laughs> no, listeners, you are fake black. <laughs> <laughs> you listen to Campton, Anthony, or whatever their name is. Captain and, you, and you didn't taste greens till you was 30. Okay, go ahead. Right, right. So, yeah, and I invited <laughs> like six older women. And at the time, I think they were all above 75. And that was the best. I, I remember it forever. But because I was so busy cooking, I didn't take any pictures of that yeah. moment. But I, I remember it in my head. What a good time. What a good time it was. And 
They complimented my food, which was great because it was my first time. They told me what I could tweak and do better and different. And I just had such a great time um, spending time with just the the golden friends and me. It was Mm -hmm. wonderful. It was wonderful. I love that. So what about you? Um, I want to know because I know you have your share of golden friends. I do. Fortunately, um, I've had problems in past relationships and even with uh, platonic friends and received the best advice ever from a golden friend. And they really helped me see the bigger picture um, and to get out of like the pettiness of the moment, mm-hmm. especially have I found I have to say in romantic relationships, they'll be like, girl, you don't know the half of it. Let me tell you about this time. I tried to hire a hitman on my husband. You like, what? Not you, girl. Not you, Elga. Yep. Mm-hmm. Elga has lived. Okay. They have been involved in some things, right? Yes. That we don't know nothing about. Yes. Yeah. And it helps. I, I feel like those conversations help me get over myself and like my feelings because um, it's just a small moment in the grand scheme of life. And, you know, um, people say life is short, but it's the longest thing you'll ever do. Mm-hmm. So um, mm. talking to them uh, really helped me put everything in its place. And then many of us have friends who um, are our age, who we met at school, work or in social circles. And these friends often sh- share our same insecurities. You know, they're trying to get to where we're going, right. which is usually some um you know, forming a family, some secular, some career success. Um, And sometimes too, we can carry like, we can harbor microaggressions that we've picked up and competitive animosity. Mm -hmm. Um, Even subconsciously, we we might have these microaggressive um, exchanges picked up from peers um, throughout the week and year, unaware of the negative effects that such emotions have on our physical and mental peace. So speaking with someone much older than us can take us out of that arena that like dog eat dog, especially at work, um, always having your guard up feeling. Mm -hmm. And it puts us in the company of a friend who wants nothing from us (laughs) and is likely much more self-confident than we are. Right. So they've been where we've been, like you said, um, maybe, you know, Maybe they have reached the career that we want or maybe they haven't. Maybe they were housewives um, there most of their lives. Still, they've, you know, seen it all and done most of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they can help us choose wise courses in life and to look at things from the right to have the right perspective on situations. Um, So when our golden friend is from a culture outside of our own. They can even help us understand the world as a whole, providing an education that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I um, have a friend outside of my culture and, and she is the best. She's had so many experiences in life. She's introduced me to things. And I just I love that relationship. Does one is the friend you're referring to? Do, do they also live outside of the country? No, not currently, oh, okay. but they have. OK, Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful thing. And they, they're they like a time capsule for whatever period, um, you know, they, they're so sharing their experience from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's like um, the way I love non-fic books and biographies and autobiographies. Talking to someone, talking to a golden friend from a different time is like reading is like reading a, a autobiography, like the best kind, because that person has a, a connection with you. 
We really, especially during these times, need to listen to our golden friends, listen to their stories, laugh with them, cry with them, look through their pictures, let them tell you about their late husband over and over again, <laughs> about their kids, uh, especially when many of our golden friends have to remain isolated these days. Oh, it's yeah. so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we continue reaching out to them and letting them know we value their input and personality. Practically, maybe we can even run errands for them, pick up their groceries or just call. Let them know, hey, I'm thinking about you. What's up? What you doing? Right. I agree. Oh, I love that. Good Housekeeping Magazine called a generation gap friendship, what we're called in Golden Friends, um, one of the most important and essential friendships in a woman's life. And oh, I would really? say, yeah, that's also that also goes for men. But, yeah, you know, good sure. housekeeping is a women's magazine mm-hmm. um, in the article. Anna Kudak, co-author of What Happy Women Do, says bridging the generation gap not only increases the friend pool that we have, but it also expands and supports mental well-being. Friendships with older and younger people for older people help broaden your perspective, which in turn allows you to have compassion and empathy in your day to day life. So cultivating these friendships can make us more well-rounded individuals. Mm hmm. So, you know, that's it. Those are the benefits of having a golden friend, you know? <laughs> I love it. So love next it. time you see an old lady crossing the street, don't help her. Tell her, girl, you want some um, wine or something? Let's go back to my place, have a chat. I want to know about your life. All right, <laughs> you ready? story, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love She's it. you don't get out my way. All right, let's take a break. Okay. Thank you for being friends. Oh, 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 yeah. Alexis, can you please give us some background on our author, Richard Osmond, and perhaps his inspiration for the Thursday Murder Club? Okay, well, let me tell you this. (laughs) Richard Osmond was born in Essex, England. And before he wrote this novel, this very first novel of his, The Thursday Murder Club, the world knew him as a television presenter, a producer, and a comedian. I thought it was funny. He didn't want this novel to be seen as a celebrity work. And when I read that, I was thinking, boy, don't nobody know you. <laughs> and on, on this side of the world, right? <laughs> don't worry, Dick. We won't. We won't look at it like that. We don't know who you are. <laughs> no worries. You are not Tobias Menzies. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that side of the world may have knew him in the UK. They knew him. I did not know him. Can I say that again? I did not know him, (laughs) all right? Um, (laughs) But he's best known as a presenter on the BBC quiz show, Pointless. He was also a presenter on the quiz shows Two Tribes and Richard Osmond's House of Games. And while he was in secondary school, and I didn't know what secondary school was, so I looked it up. Secondary school in, in England is between ages of 16 and 11. He got his first broadcasting experience as a regular contributor to Turn It Up, which is an open access music show 
that aired on Sunday evenings on the BBC radio Sussex. Um, ages 16 to 11, you said? <laughs> <laughs> ages 11 to 16, okay? Okay, fine. Yeah, sure. Secondary okay, school. Mm-hmm. Yes. He has a podcast called The Birthday Game, but I hey, checked. Hey, 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 no one cares. <laughs> the last episode of that was in December 2019. So I don't Ooh, think he's good. still doing it. Don't check it out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's a regular on the show. Let's play darts again over in the UK. Over there. <laughs> show sounds, sound very English. <laughs> Steven Spielberg actually re- acquired the rights to his book. Um, so there's a TV and there's a TV adaptation underway for the Thursday Murder Club. I saw that. So Steven Spielberg is not working on the TV adaptation. Only, no, there's going to be a television show and a movie. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he's got a lot of TV credits under his belt. He says he's always wanted to write a book because he's always been a writer. He's always read crime books and his inspiration for writing this book was um, having a discussion. Um, he he said it came from a visit to an upmarket retirement village. I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up. And apparently, it's an expensive um, retirement village for affluent people. So he okay. went to a visit there, was chatting with people. He was like, hmm, I could write me a book about this. <laughs> and so he said he might met a lot of lovely people. That's what he said. And so he wanted to write about that. So he wrote the book in secret over 18 months. The book was published in September of 2020, and it sold 45,000 copies in the first three days and became a Sunday Times bestseller. Um, He is brother to Matt Osmond, who was a founding member of the Britpop band Suede or London Suede, which is what it's called in the U.S. And I am... BD, I am DB, says he is like <laughs> six, seven, yeah, six foot okay. seven. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's pretty tall. Um, so that's it. That's what I know about Richard Osman. Do you know anything about him? Don't know anything else about him. Um, if I did, I'm sure you already covered it. So thank you very much for that insider's look at Richard Osman, the author of our book. Now, please, can you provide us with a brief, no spoiler synopsis of the Thursday Murder Club? Sure. And here we go. Four residents of Cooper Chase, an affluent and peaceful retirement home, meet together on Thursdays to discuss unsolved murders. They are the Thursday Murder Club. Their first live case presents itself after the murder of the partner of a local developer who wants to uproot a graveyard and chop down trees near the home to expand housing. So, Kari, yes. who do you think would love this book? I think if you love to read about clever, underestimated underdogs who outsmart the world around them, or if you watched Murder, She Wrote, I didn't, but this seems like it would go in line with that. Poirot, yes, yes. Matlock, you yes. know, anything in those, that category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd love this book. I watched those. I would love this book. <laughs> and Alexis, <laughs> what were your first thoughts of the Thursday Murder Club? So listen, I was like in the process of looking for my books for the season, right? And yeah. I was really busy at work, so I cheated. A friend <laughs> was like, hey, look at this book I'm reading. I said, gotcha. 
<laughs> so I added it to my list because the cover looked interesting, okay? The cover and the yeah. title looked interesting. So we I literally said, yeah. judge books by their cover over here <laughs> all the time. In real life, okay? <laughs> e true story. And now for a spoiler-filled deep dive into the Thursday Murder Club. And I will just say briefly, content warning, we are for the smallest, smallest moment going to touch on the matter of suicide very, very briefly, but you should know. Alexis, please take it away. Killing someone is easy. Hiding the body? Now that's usually the hard part. That's how you get caught. I was lucky enough to stumble upon the right place, though. The perfect place, really. I come back from time to time, just to make sure everything is still safe and sound. It always is, and I suppose it always will be. Sometimes I'll have a cigarette, which I know I shouldn't, but it's my only vice. Our story begins with the meeting of Joyce and Elizabeth. One day, Joyce is having lunch and Elizabeth walks up to her and says, Ah, I see you are eating, but I want to talk about knife wounds. Is mm. the rest of this deep dive going to go like this? I just want to know so I can be prepared. <laughs> no. So I can mute my mic. Okay. <laughs> Imagine if a girl is stabbed three or four times under the breastbone without severing an artery. How long would it take the girl to bleed to death? To me and to everybody else, that seems like a random question, right? However, yes, Elizabeth yes. is one who seems to know everything and know who everybody is, okay? So she already knew that Joyce was a retired nurse. So she saw an opportunity when she saw Joyce having lunch to ask her this question. Joyce is intrigued by the question and asks a follow-up. What kind of knife? How much did she weigh? <laughs> Joyce then provides an answer. 45 minutes without medical assistance. But if she had medical assistance, she would live. Glad to have offered the assistance, Joyce asks, may I see the pictures, please? Delighted. <laughs> These Elizabeth. old people are dark. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Elizabeth is like, oh, I... I like that she's interested. Come. I invite you to our weekly meeting on Thursdays. By the well, way, <laughs> it's a Thursday murder club. Join us. <laughs> well, Elizabeth hands her the photo and goes, you can have this one. We all have our own copies <laughs> of the murder scene. <laughs> of the murder scene. That's a thing. The case that the murder club is reviewing is about a woman who was believed to be killed by her boyfriend. The boyfriend bolted from the officer's squad car on the way to a police interview and hadn't been seen since. He had even hit the officer before he ran off. We're later going to learn that the officer was one of the founding members of the murder club. The club was started by Elizabeth and Penny, the other founding member. Penny was a former inspector with the Kent police for many years, and she would bring case files from unsolved mysteries, and her and Elizabeth would go through the files line by line. Now, mind you, she's retired, but she would go get these files, and nobody would say anything to her because <laughs> she's a, you know, a golden. She's a golden. A golden girl. She's a golden girl. Mm -hmm. 
So they didn't like the idea of guilty people like getting away with murder. So they were committed to looking through these cases and, you know, getting some answers. And they did find something, but I don't think there's much they could do with them. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Penny, though, now is in a nursing home and she's suffering from dementia. And her husband, John, is who cares for her. And well, he sits with her daily. I mean, like he sits with her all day and Penny and excuse me, Elizabeth often visits her and keeps her updated on the stories. Yeah, because her and Elizabeth were buddies. Yeah. And then her husband, John, Penny's husband, John, um, Elizabeth knows, like holds her hand and talks to her all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there are nurses that care for her. Yeah, nurses that care <clears throat> for her. So he really just sits and um, reads and talks to her all day. And then um, whenever Elizabeth has a case, she'll go over and chat chatter up about the case yeah because so, they both think she might be able to hear them even though she's like unconscious yeah mm-hmm. and she it has no ability to never respond. mind that yeah no ability to respond the members of the club are elizabeth um who is possibly a former secret agent is that what it <laughs> is <laughs> she has some experience in that side of the world y'all Mm-hmm. She's been doing some things. She got yeah. lots of connections. She got people that owe her favors all over the world. So secret agent. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. She's also married to Stephen, who she's monitoring for dementia. Um, she also gives him a uh, sedative every day so that he sleeps through the night. She wants him to stay in bed. And he's like her third husband for a number of reasons, right? Isn't yeah, they her say? third husband. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then there is Ibrahim. And he is or was a psychiatrist. He might still be seeing pe- patients. Patients love him so much they still come out and chat with him. And so he used to help out Penny and Elizabeth before he actually joined the club. And so they invited him in. It was like, okay, we got a psychiatrist on hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there was Ron Ritchie, the famous trade union leader, and he was the first resident of Cooper's Chase. He's also father to Jason Ritchie, who is a professional boxer. Now, Ron Ritchie got invited to the club because the club is booked under um, French opera, I think. And so he said Japanese oh, opera, Japanese history. opera history. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, what is that? And so he crashes one of the meetings. He's like, I ain't falling for it. What y'all doing in here? And yeah. he listened. And they liked it. Yeah. They was like, oh, you suspicious. You can be part of the club. They, they said, named it that club. So no one would ask. But when he started asking about it, he, they, they admired that in him. Yeah. And they say, welcome to the club. Join us. Look at some pictures. The thing that he does is he helps them question or not believe everything that the police say. And so they like that contribution. So now let me tell you a little bit about Cooper's Chase. Cooper's Chase is owned by Ian, Ian Ventham and a partner, 25%, Tony Current. It's a luxury retirement village on a land formerly owned by the Catholic Church. It used to be a home to a convent. So it's built on 12 acres of woodland and beautiful open hillside. There are two small lakes there, one real, one created. There's a chapel still on the premises that the residents use. There's a graveyard that they call the Garden of Eternal Rest. And you got to be 65 to live there. There's also an arthritis pool slash jacuzzi. They got a sauna, a gym room, an exercise studio, an upscale 
a restaurant, a lounge, a library. They have everything they need. It's upscale. Sound nice to me. Mm-hmm. One day, they invite a police constable for a chat. You know, her name is Donna DeFritis. We're going to call her Donna. PC Donna is a 26-year-old and she's unmarried. PC Donna or Donna thinks she'll be giving her um, standard presentation, practical tips for home security to the golden folks, right? That's what she's thinking. But as mm-hmm. she begins to give her presentation, she is interrupted by Elizabeth. Um, Say here, lady, we don't want to talk about security. We already know all about that. And in fact, one member, Ron said, you know what? I'm so blind. I wouldn't know if they'd show me a card or not what it was. And I will welcome a visitor, a burglar. So, I mean, because <laughs> so, he goes, Listen, we understand. Don't let anyone in. We don't know. We got it. I promise. And then Ron is like, well, I'm going to tell you my eyesight so bad. If they show me a library card, I would let them in. And it might be nice to have a burglar. At least we would give visitors for once. (laughs) It's so cute when you read it. It is really cute. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth is like, why don't you talk about institutional sexism in the workforce and the police force? <laughs> so they end up having a nice discussion and they invite Donna to stay for lunch. They forget to tell they for, had um, when Joyce sent out the invitations for the meeting. They forgot to tell Donna that it was the murder club meeting. So. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> they're they're slyly initiating a cop into their club. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Donna shows up at this old people home to tell them about security, and they like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really just here to help for you to work on our cases. <laughs> yes, we need some thoughts <laughs> and feedback. Right. So I invent them. The owner of Cooper's Chase. He purchased it a few years ago from a friend who needed quick cash. Tony Curran. Is his partner. He owns 25% of um, Cooper's Chase. Tony does all the construction. Tony actually threatened to break Ian's arm if he refused to let him in on the venture. Yeah, so he let him in. Mm. Tony has a history of violent behavior. And actually, Ian used to use him for that purpose, too. So, hmm. Ian wants to expand on the land um, to build more luxury apartments because he knows that's where the money is. He wants to cut down the woodlands, the beautiful um, trees and move the graveyard so he can make a new development called the woodlands. And he wants to cut his partner, Tony Curran, out of the new development. But who's going to replace Tony? He's got an idea. Bogdan. Bogdan. Ian wants Bogdan to replace Tony. Bogdan is Polish and is like the maintenance guy. That's what I understood, that he was like the maintenance guy for Cooper's Chase. Yeah, like the suit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he fixes things. Yeah, the maintenance guy, like you said. Yeah. His mom died and he inherited money from her. So he doesn't really need money. He just enjoys work and the people he does the work for. But Ian owes Bogdan like 4,000 pounds, but he hopes Bogdan will be thrown out of the country so he doesn't have to pay him. Now, Ian, Ventham, people don't like him. He's not a likable character. He's just not. He's greedy. He's selfish. Mm-hmm. He's a liar. All of that. All of that. Mm-hmm. Bogdan and Ian Ventham meet for lunch, at a, meet at a coffee shop. And when Ian shows up, 
he parks in the handicapped parking because it's close to the building. Ian is also cheap. So when they meet to discuss um, the $4,000 that he owes Bogdan, he was like, what's 2,800 between friends? He said, I got 300 (laughs) for you, but the check is actually for 2,800. It's no big deal, right? Mm -hmm. So he's trying to cheat him. Mm -hmm. So Bogdan doesn't really care because he already has money. Like I said, he does stuff because he likes what he does. So he accepts what Bogdan offers. He doesn't seem to have any hard feelings behind it. Ian then offers Bogdan an opportunity to replace Ian's partner, Tony Curran. So which means he'll be doing more of uh, kind of the heavy lifting when it comes to developing the property. Bogdan says, if you fire Tony, he might just kill you. (laughs) Ian says, let me worry about that. Ian knows there's a meeting planned the next day where everybody's at the um, Cooper's Chase are going to join together and kind of t- the residents of Cooper's Chase are going to come together and talk about the the graveyard and the woodlands being the graveyard being moved and the woodlands being cut down. Um, so. Ian thinks this is the prime opportunity to tell Tony, because if Tony reacts negatively, people will be around to see it. They'll, he'll have witnesses. Basically, uh, Tony won't be able to kill him in front of a whole bunch of people. So he th- so he says, right. And mm-hmm. another property that Ian is interested in is a nearby farm owned by Gordon Playfair. Gordon Playfair owns Hillcrest and won't sell to Ian because he didn't like him. Just he don't like him. People don't like Ian. Can I assure you of that? <laughs> Ian decided. Though, even though he knows the father doesn't like him and he knows people don't like him, he feel like that's their problem. Ian decided he's going to work on Gordon's daughter and try to convince Gordon's daughter to, to convince her father to sell. Gordon's daughter is like 50 years old and Ian feels like she's given up on life. So it's very shallow. Anyway, but he figures if he flirts with her for a couple of weeks, he could get her to um, convince <laughs> Gordon to sell the property. At the meeting to discuss the moving of the graveyard and cutting down of the woodlands, the murder club members are present. And Ryan is especially vocal because he doesn't like what Ian is doing. He feels like he's taking liberties and eat. And Ryan Richie doesn't like when anybody takes liberties with him. Father Mackey is a local and he's also a con- he's also in attendance and he's concerned about the graveyard being moved. So he's there to hear what's going to be said. He does not want the graveyard moved. Ian considers this meeting as just a hearing of the residents' complaints because he's going to do what he's going to do anyway. And as planned, he fires Tony Curran. Ian and Tony are outside having an animated conversation and Ron Ritchie and his son Jason and Joyce happened to see this argument. After going their separate ways, Tony decides Ian needs to pay for trying to cut him out of this deal. Tony used his building company as a way to front for drug businesses. It would allow him to wash his dirty money. But as the building company got bigger, Tony was able to walk away and turn money legally. So he was married and he lived a, in a home that he never imagined he'd ever live in. So Ian cutting him out of the Woodlands deal was huge. 
So as Tony is sitting at home thinking about a plan to kill Ian, in fact, he was going to write it down, but I don't think he found a pen. So he just, you know, thinking it through in his head, how he can make this happen and quickly. Well, as he's doing that, Tony is hit on the head with a spanner. And for us in America, that's a wrench. That's a wrench. I had to look up a lot of these words. What's a spade? <laughs> it's a shovel. It's a okay. shovel, yes. So he got hit in the head with a wrench. What's with a, a CP? WPC? That's a, a woman cop. Yes. <laughs> yes. I was like, what is that? What is Englishisms. <laughs> but back to the climax. He got hit on the head with a wrench and woke up dead, and as your sister up, would say. Exactly. Exactly. Woke up dead. Blunt force trauma. He was found by his wife. Tony Curran had made up his mind. He brings his BMW X7 to a halt on the heated driveway. There's a gun buried under the sycamore in the back garden. Or is it under the beach? It's one or the other, but that's something he can think about with a nice cup of tea. And he can try to remember where his spade is while he's at it. Tony Curran is going to kill Ian Ventham. That's a given now. Surely, Ian knows it too. You can only take so many liberties before even the most calm and rational man snaps. Tony whistles a tune from an advert and heads indoors. He moved in about 18 months ago on the first row profits from Cooper's Chase. It was the type of house he had always dreamed of. A house built on hard work, on making the right choices, cutting the right corners and backing his own talent. A monument to what he had achieved in brick, glass, and tempered walnut. Tony lets himself in and sets to work switching off the alarm. Ventham had got some of his gang to fit it last week. Polish, the lot of them, but then who isn't these days? He gets the four-digit code right on the third attempt, a new record. Tony Curran has always taken his security very seriously. For many years, his building company had really just been a front for his drug business, a way to explain away his income, a way to wash away his dirty money. But it slowly got bigger, took up more of his time, brought in more and more money. If you told young Tony he would end up living in this house, he wouldn't have been at all surprised. If you told him he'd buy it with money earned legally, he'd have killed over there and then. His wife, Debbie, is not back, but that suits him fine for now. It gives him time to concentrate, really think it all through. Tony rewinds back to the row with Ian Ventham, and his fury rises again. Ian was cutting him out of the woodlands, just like that, a conversation on the way to his car. Outdoors, just in case Tony felt like swinging a punch, he would have loved to have smacked him there and then. That was the old Tony. So they had a little row, nice and quiet. No one could possibly have noticed. And that's good for Tony. When Ventham turns up dead, no one can say they saw Tony Curran and Ian Ventham having a ding-dong. Keeps it clean. He sits on a bar stool, pulls it up to the island in his vast kitchen, and slides open a drawer. He needs to get a plan down on paper. Tony is not a believer in luck. He's a believer in hard work. If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. An old English teacher of his once told him that and he never forgotten it. The next year, he torched the same teacher's car following an argument about football, but Tony still had to hand it to the guy. If you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. As it turns out, there is no paper in the drawer, so Tony decides to work out the plan in his head instead. Nothing needs to be done tonight. Let the world continue for a while. Let the birds keep singing in the garden. Let Ventham think he has won. And then strike. Why did people ever mess with Tony Curran? When had that ever worked out for anyone? 
Tony hears the noise a second too late. He turns to see the spanner as it swings toward him. Big one too, real old school stuff. There's no way to avoid the swing and in the brief moment of realization he has, Tony Curran gets it. You can't win them all, Tony. That's fair enough, he thinks. That's fair enough. The blow catches him on the left temple and he collapses to the marble floor. The birds in the garden stop singing for the briefest of moments and then continue their merry tune high up in the sycamore tree. Or is it the beach? The killer places a photograph on the worktop as Tony Curran's fresh blood begins to form a moat around his walnut kitchen island. After Tony is killed, the killer leaves a photograph near the body. That evening, Elizabeth finds out about Tony's death. Now, Elizabeth is the head of the murder club, if y'all remember. Mm-hmm. So she, she might have been a top secret FBI agent. Exactly. Back in the day. And so she decides, <laughs> you know what? We're going to take this case. We're going to handle this case ourselves. I think we could do that. She got some plans. So she wants to set up set it up so that Donna will be the case, um, will be their contact on the case, giving them an opportunity to have someone on the inside to give them case files, witness statements, and, you know, forensics and whatnot. Possible suspects in the Tony Curran murder. One, Ian Ventham. That was his partner, Tony Curran's partner. Then there's also the people in the photograph. That's going to be Jason Ritchie, Bobby Tanner, and then a hired muscle man. Well, excuse me, Bobby Tanner was the hired muscle man. And then whoever the photographer is, who we learn later is a guy named Turkish Gianni. Yeah, whoever took the picture, which is, yeah, Turkish Gianni. All right. So the next day, Elizabeth and Joyce take a minibus into town where they, well, it was Elizabeth's plan to visit the police station. Joyce just wanted to go to the little vegan shop and just, you know, eat some food and stuff. The <laughs> shop is called Anything with a Pulse. <laughs> they go into the police station and Elizabeth pretends that her purse is stolen and that she wants to speak to a woman PC. Mm-hmm. She does. That's a police officer. Mm-hmm. So the desk sergeant obliges and PC Donna is brought in you know, Donna is the one that they kind of have for lunch and she told him stories. Why are you? Do- no. So she, she says her purse was stolen. And so the officer is like, well, you know, I can take a statement for you and we'll go. Um, and then she starts crying. And he's like, what do I do? And so Joyce is like, I'm sorry, but my friend is a nun. <laughs> That's like the that's like the big deal about it. And then Elizabeth is like, you know, going I'm, along I'm with it. I'm going to let you it. tell it, please. Oh, am I wrong? No, no, please proceed. <laughs> and so the officer is like, fine, I'll find a, a lady officer for you to talk to because you're a nun. And he walks away and Elizabeth was like, a nun? That's good, Joyce. And Joyce is like, I thought I'd help you out. And so, and then Donna's like, first of all, you ain't no nun. Second of all, I know both of y'all from that little murder club y'all got at the old folks home. What do you want? That's what she said. That's what she said. So, and they like, no, let me tell you about you. Mm-hmm. So listen, <laughs> Donna says, excuse me, Elizabeth says to Donna, listen, we know you in town because you had a bad breakup with your boyfriend and you came out here to this small town to get away. So if we could make some arrangements 
for you to work on a case. Do you want to be a part of this Tony Curran murder case? Please and do you Donna's want like, what? Mm-hmm. First of all, you're only partially right, but they're totally right. <laughs> and they don't even have evidence of this. They're just older women, so they know stuff. They just know. They know you didn't leave London to come hang out in this small town for no reason. You running from a relationship, and you, we know you bored because nothing ever happened. And then a the murder happens, and you're not even on the case because you're a rookie. You want to be on the case? We can arrange it. <laughs> we can make some arrangements. We can do that. That's what we could do. So she's really skeptical, but she's also eager to be on this case. Donna is. She wants to. So she accepts. She accepts their offer. But they're what's like, what's the worst that could happen? Mm-hmm. She's like, wait, wait. She don't really believe they could do it. Yeah. What do you want from me? Donna's like, what do you want from me? She, Elizabeth's like, well, just share some information. And <laughs> Donna's like, well, you know, I, I can't share, you know, sensitive case information of course elizabeth says nothing unprofessional nothing like that (laughs) donna is given the role of detective on the case and she works with um her partner is chris hudson she's going to be his shadow and under this so y'all the older people have worked out a way for donna to be on the case they involved they do it. They doing their thing. They manipulating yeah. situations in real life. I mean, real quick. I think it was Abram who acted feeble minded. No, it was Ron. Oh, Ron uh, Richie. Yeah, Ron Richie. So, so Ron, the boxer's dad, is like acting all feeble minded while he's talking to the officer because he wants to tell the officer he has some news about the murder. He doesn't, and so the officer is like, "Okay, come out with the news." And he's like, "I feel much better talking to a woman officer like that Donna that comes by our um, <laughs> assisted living facility. Can you get her? Can I talk to her?" And the officer is like, "Donna, I think I know who that is in his mind." He's like uh so if i get donna will you tell me what you know about the murder yes that would be much better absolutely and he's also kind of acting like confused mm-hmm. and Ab- all just up front yeah and abraham is there to kind of support him yes 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 we could <laughs> uh, we'll ask yes, for that donna. yeah mm-hmm, donna. That would- mm-hmm. as the investigation begins they learn that tony curran was a former drug dealer he had some previous run-ins with the law, minor, some not so minor. But then in 2000, he was identified as the shooter of another young drug dealer in a pub. The witness was a local taxi driver, and he disappeared soon after. So because there were no witnesses, Tony Curran got away scot-free. And since 2000, Tony Curran hasn't done anything to awaken police attention. Meanwhile... Joyce, you remember Joyce? She's the newest member of the murder club. She meets and invites fellow resident Bernard for lunch. And she, so she learns all about Bernard. Bernard had a wife and um, she was Indian. They had been married for 47 years. They moved to Cooper's Chase together and she had a stroke and was at Willows, which is the nursing home where also Penny is. Elizabeth's friend and so within six months of that stroke his wife died and she died that was 18 months ago and they have one daughter who lives in um, Vancouver but this is Joyce's friend Um, she kind of meets up with him and talks with him and you know she's like a little comfort to him 
Ian Ventham is interviewed by Donna and Chris. So they ask if Ian knows the people that is in the photograph that was found near Tony's body. Ian says he only recognizes Jason Ritchie and he only recognizes him, he says, because he's a famous um, boxer. He denied having an argument with Tony. He said um, until the police said, uh, but somebody heard you arguing with him. He was like, oh, that was just a minor bickering. And plus that we was talking about automatic sprinklers. Um, I wanted them. (laughs) Sprinklers. (laughs) Tony did not. You sound like Roller Ray. (laughs) You know what that is. (laughs) Stop it. Just stop it. I'm I'm trying to have words here, okay? (laughs) Okay, you got it. Y'all know words is hard for me sometimes. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, Ian wanted, he said he wanted to put these new sprinklers and the new, this new sprinkler system in the new flats, but Tony didn't want it because of the expense. All right. That's his take on it. They leave Ian Ventham alone. Okay. They walk away. uh, Come back to that another time. Donna and Chris are then invited to Joyce's house by Elizabeth to get and share details. So they get over there and they have this discussion beforehand and say the plan and the goal is to keep uh, Donna and Chris there until they give up some details about the case. They tell Donna and Chris, the murder club tells Donna and Chris that Ventham's business was very profitable but he wanted to cut Curran out of the new business, the Woodlands. And Bentham signed the papers to cut Tony out of the deal the day before the consultation meeting, which was the meeting where they heard them bickering. Tony Curran's shares all reverted back to Bentham after Curran's death. That's $12.25 million. So it sounds like Bentham really could have done this murder, you know, for the dollar bills. Yeah, for the money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I did like this setup where they um, put him in. They invited the police officers into the house. They had him. They offered him a seat and he happened to sit down on the love seat. And then two people sat next to him. (laughs) They're they're holding these two officers hostage. Now, Donna knows what she's in for. She knows how pushy these older people are. Chris is being like baptized in the the, uh, Thursday murder club. But by the end of it, he's like, yeah, I, I like them. Yeah. I know they're using me. I, I know they're using me for information, but you can't help but love them. But the reading of this um, part was just so hilarious to me how they had him sitting in that chair. He was like, I can't even hold it. And look at and look at <laughs> They so close he can't even drink his tea. <laughs> the tea is too hot to hold and they too close for him to bring it to his mouth to drink it. <laughs> and he's like a little larger. <laughs> Well, they did it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. They set him up for the okie doke. We also learned that Ron's son, Jason, is in the photograph, as I mentioned earlier. Um, Jason Ritchie, the public loved him. He was a, a ex-boxer, famous forever. He's done a lot of stuff. But he's also at this stage where um, he's not making, he's doing everything like if he was here, he'd be doing Dancing with the Stars, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he's in that position. So that's how he makes his money now. 
um, doing reality shows and advertisements and whatnot. So he stops by the house while Donna and Jason are there. And so they see this as an opportunity to ask him questions. So Ian decides he is tired of waiting. He's going to get started digging on his new development. The graveyard is the easiest to move. So he's going to start there. So he sends Bogdan up to get started. But he also has a graveyard digging company um, present for them to come in. But once the residents realize that Ian has arrived to start moving the graveyard, they begin to come out and protest. Even Father Mark, even Father Mackey is called to the scene. The residents block the entrance and the path to the graveyard. They're even um, tying themselves to the entrance gate. So mm-hmm. Ian calls the police to move the people because they've gone um, in his mind. They've gone through all the court proceedings. The people have lost. It's his right. He can get started. These people need to get out of his way. Chris and Donna arrive and because they heard that someone was calling the police to that location to Cooper's chase. So they're like, we'll go out there. So they go out there and listen to the concerns of Ian. Chris tells the people they need to leave or they will be rest- arrested, but not really. Just leave him alone. <laughs> when Father Mackey shows up at the site, Ian is immediately angered because Father Mackey had actually come to his home already to plead with him not to move the great yard. And he used, um, what did he say? He said, um, you're gonna, something like you're going to be punished for this. You know, God will punish you for this, something like that. You're going to pay for moving graves. You shouldn't be moving dead bodies. Ian is so upset by his present. He tells Father Mackey to get off his property and he reaches to shove him and they both fall on the ground. Ian falls on top of Father Mackey. Donna and Karen play fair. And I think I mentioned her earlier. Well, yeah, Donna and Karen Playfair, that is um, the daughter of the man whose home, whose farm Ian wants to buy. He's all, she's also there. So Donna and Karen Playfair, they help Ian off the priest. They pull him up off the priest because he's, you know, they're both on the ground. All right. So a group of residents, including Joyce, Brian and Bernard surround Ian and restrain him, you know, while the other residents guard Father Mackey, who's now dazed and on the ground. Ian Mm. screams for Mackey's arrest. But Chris pulls Ian aside and says, listen, what you did caused him to fall so you could go to jail. I strongly suggest you go home today. And as Ian walks away towards his Range Rover, we hear him utter confused words. But at that very moment, he sees Father Matthew Mackey standing there in his frock and little white collar like he owns the place, as bold as you like. This is Ian's land. He storms toward the barricade and has his finger in Father Mackey's face in seconds. If you weren't a vicar, I would knock you out. The crowd starts to surround them as if it's a fight in a pub car park. Get off of my property or I'll get you thrown off. Ian aims a shove at Mackie's shoulder, knocking the older man backward. Mackie reaches out for balance, grabbing Ian's t-shirt, and the two men lose their balance and fall to the ground together. Donna, with the help of a horrified-looking Karen Playfair, pulls Ian up and off the priest. 
A group of residents, including Joyce, Ron, and Bernard, then surround and restrain Ian Bentham, while residents on the other side form a guard around Father Mackey, now sitting dazed on the ground. School playground stuff, really, but he looks shaken. Calm it, Mr. Bentham. Calm down, yells Donna. Arrest him! Trespass! yells Ian, now being pulled away from the scene by a group of determined septuagenarians, octogenarians, and even one nonagenarian who missed Second World War call-up by a day and had regretted it ever since. Joyce finds herself in the scrum. How strong these men must have been in their day. Ron, Bernard, John, Ibram, and how diminished they were now. The spirit was still willing at least, but only Chris Hudson was really able to hold Ventham back. The testosterone was lovely while it lasted though. I'm protecting sacred ground peacefully and lawfully, says Father Mackey. Donna helps Father Mackey to his feet, dusting him down and feeling the frailty of the old man beneath the loose black cossack. Chris pulls Ian Bentham from the scrum of bodies surrounding him. He can see the adrenaline surging through Ian's body, the sort of thing he's seen a thousand times before in the late night drunks of too many towns, the veins riding the muscles that poke out from his t-shirt, a giveaway of steroid abuse. Home now, Mr. Bentham, orders Chris Hudson, before I arrest you. I didn't touch him, protests Ian. Chris remains quiet to keep the conversation private. He stumbled, Mr. Ventham. I saw that. But he stumbled after you made contact with him, however light. So if I want to arrest you, I will. And allow a policeman a hunch, there might be one or two witnesses to help me in court. So if you don't want to be charged with assaulting a priest, which wouldn't look good in your brochures, then you get in your car and you drive away. Understand? Ian nods, but without conviction. His brain already somewhere else, making some other calculation. He then shakes his head slowly and sadly at Chris Hudson. Hmm. Something's not right here. Something's up. Well, whatever's up will still be up tomorrow, says Chris. So get yourself home, calm yourself down, and mop your brow. Be a man and take a defeat. Ian turns and walks toward his car. Defeat. <laughs> As if. As he passes the low loader, he bangs twice on the cab door and cocks his thumb toward the exit. He walks slowly, thinking, where's Bogdan? Bogdan's a good guy. He's Polish. Ian needs to get him to tile his swimming pool. He's too lazy. They all are. He'll talk to Tony Curran. Tony will know what to do. But did Tony lose his phone? Something about Tony. Ian reaches the Range Rover. The car has been clamped. His dad will be furious. He's only borrowed it. He'll have to get the bus from town and his dad will be waiting for him. Ian is frightened and starts to cry. Don't cry, Ian. He'll see. I Ian doesn't want to go home. He searches his pockets for change, then stumbles and topples backward. He reaches out for something to hold, but to his surprise, there is only air. Ian Bentham is dead before he hits the ground. But... I mean, we should say that this is written in a really interesting way where Ian is walking. He notices someone hit his car and he's thinking, um, that's my dad's car. My dad's going to be so angry with me. And he starts crying and, and he tells himself, Ian, don't cry. And then he falls back and he goes to catch something, but is shocked to realize there is nothing there. And he is dead before he hits the ground. It's so it discombobulates the reader in a way that makes you feel drugged as Ian must also be drugged. It's, it's, I thought that was really interesting the way it was written. Cause I'm like, why this thug crying in the middle of the street 
about a car his dad owns. That can't be right because he's got money. So it's his car. It's not his dad's car. But he's yeah, like that, that was out of it. That was really weird. You could tell he was out of it. While this fight is going on for Ian to get inside of um, the gate to start working on the graveyard to move, Bogdan has already started digging at the grave. And as he digs, he uncovers bones outside of a coffin. Whose bones are they? Is it just the way the bones were buried back then? Or is this a murder? Is this why there's so much anger around the moving of the graveyard? Is someone trying to hide a murder? Listen. Probably. Bogdan decides he can trust Elizabeth. And so he decides he wants to bring Elizabeth up to see the bones outside the coffin. And he decides that he can trust Elizabeth. Here's why. Elizabeth had charged him up just before he walked (laughs) up the path to go dig up the bones and asked him if he had married, murdered Tony Curran. And he was like, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't do it. She's like, okay. And they went on. No, no, that's not why. And and then she goes, Bogdan, right? He goes, yeah. Uh, like, what's your name? And she goes, Marina. Marina. And she thought this might work. Because <clears throat> he's thinking in his head, my mother's name was Marina. And so he instantly is attached to Elizabeth because she's lied and said, his, her name is Marina. But she goes, what can you expect when you have all these tattoos? tattoos? On One name. of them's going to be your mama's <laughs> name. I'm going to just take her name <laughs> and trick you into trusting me. These these people smart. These older people smart. So, yeah, she tells him her name's Marina. He instantly trusts her because that was his mother's name. This is a true story, you guys. You can believe what Kari said. listen so he then um takes her later that evening he takes her up to the coffin to see it and she sees the bones and elizabeth tells him that they're going to keep the secret between them until she decides what to do elizabeth has another case to investigate the murder club decides that whoever murdered ian must have buried murdered the body that's outside the buried coffin they have an idea who it could be because whoever the, whoever killed the body in the coffin had to be here in the 70s and then here again. But who could that be? They do have an idea. Not sure. Possible suspects in the I Invent the Murder. Listen, the murder club was there. They were all there when it happened. So they decided that they are all suspects of the I Invent the Murder because they were present and had access to the deceased. We also learned that Ian was injected with a massive overdose of fentanyl in his upper arm just moments leading up to his collapse. So there are 70 possible suspects because so many of the residents were present trying to get them, prevent them from getting into the gate. So they deleted people who were never close to Ian or um, wouldn't be able to get to him, wouldn't have been able to get to him like really quickly. So they deleted those that were on walkers. They <laughs> deleted those that had severe mobility issues. They also deleted those who had mobility scooters. They deleted those who had uh, cataracts. And then, of course, the three people who were padlocked to the gate. So they narrowed their list down a little further. Then 
Ibrahim and Ron Ritchie get together and they narrow it down a little further. Now they decide that Bernard, he be hanging out at the graveyard. Plus he hasn't seemed to recover from his wife's death. So surely he has something to do with it. Then they think about Father Mackey. He was there. Something going on with him. And then Karen Playfair, she was there. Something going on with her. And then Ron Ritchie, you know, he was there. So he's possible. And then uh, Abraham says, and then how about your son, Jason? Hmm? The ex-boxer, yeah. Yeah, maybe him. And so they get into a little discussion about that. But Jason gets written down. Abraham, and then, of mm-hmm. course, Elizabeth and Joyce. So we're just getting ready to jump right to the meat of it. Who killed Ian Bentham? Elizabeth decides to question Father Mackey, who really isn't a priest, but a <gasps> doctor who has access to fentanyl, right? So mm-hmm. she plans to meet him at the chapel for a confession. Elizabeth tells a possible story for the priest and shares a confession. She said she just needed to get it off her chest before she died. The priest listened carefully. And after Elizabeth. Yeah, she's saying I killed I killed somebody and I buried him up in that hill. Mm -hmm. And I'm so, so sad about it. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, What do you think? And after Elizabeth is finished with her story, Dr. Mackey says, um, I don't believe a word of what you just said. You weren't even here what? in 1970. <laughs> and Elizabeth and says, she goes, you were you sh- <laughs> triggered much by my story. <laughs> <laughs> and Dr. Mackey kind of like, uh, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> he just sighs and rolls his eyes like, uh-huh. Exactly. These people stupid. <laughs> That's crazy. She was like, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> he was like <sighs> Dr. Mackey says first off call me Matthew Elizabeth said well first things first Matthew why did you kill Ian Bentham Matthew Mackey tells his story we learn that when he was a young priest he moved to the convent and fell in love with one of the nuns her name was Mackey they had a relationship and they, I think they were ready to run off together, but Maggie was tied. He was ready. But Maggie was tied to the, her nunship. She, she was in yeah, the Yeah, so it was interesting because he saw the priesthood as a job, like any job. And he wasn't a very religious person, mm-hmm. but this was what kept a roof over his head. So he fell in love with this nun and he was like, hey, I'll give up the priesthood and let's go run away together and I can get a job. You know, I have skills. And um, she's like, well, I'm kind of in it for the faith. <laughs> so I got to think about it. <laughs> it was harder for her. Yeah, it was definitely harder for her. So um when she turns up pregnant, she tells a fellow nun and that fellow nun tells um, Sister Mary and Sister Mary I'm going to say like she's her boss or something how about that she tells her and when Sister Mary finds out she tells Maggie a car's going to come for you 
tomorrow and you're going to go back to whence, from whence you came, Ireland. So Maggie hung herself and his arrangement with the head mother, whatever, I think that's what she's called. Is that she um, be was buried that, in the graveyard of eternal rest. Yeah. And he, that car that was supposed to come for um, the nun, he would get in it and go back home. And then when that head nun died, he went back to the um, church to that specific church so that he could be with um, Maggie's grave and just um, be near her remains. That was important to him because that was the only woman he ever loved. And he called the son that they never had Patrick. So he wanted to be near Maggie and Patrick. And so he's pouring his heart out to um, the Thursday murder club. And, and they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> listen, this is so touching. I'm touched. You touched? Cause I'm touched. However, um, that makes you more of a suspect than anybody because you didn't want those remains to be moved. And he was like, yeah, well, but I didn't do it. <laughs> exactly. Matthew Mackey did not kill Ian Bentham. He only wanted to prevent Maggie's grave from being dug up. That's all. Sad story. Which is motivation to kill Ian. But he says he but didn't. But he ain't do it, okay? He ain't do it. So one day... Elizabeth heads over. Well, one thing happened. Um, Karen Playfair, y'all remember her? That's Gordon Playfair's daughter. They want to, um, Ian wants to buy their farmland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was going to try to flirt with her to get her to get her father to sell. That's right. That's right. One day she's hanging out with Jason Ritchie because Jason Ritchie had accused her of killing Ian Ventham too. And so they hanging out one time and... um. She sees a picture. Well, I think they met on Tinder, yeah, right? They met it was on a date. But then she got called back to their house <laughs> so they could have another discussion. Well, yeah, but during the day, he's like, mm-hmm, yeah, you're really nice. By the way, I think you's a murderer. So everybody's a detective now, let me assure you. Yeah, because he, because the ex-boxer now, he doesn't want police thinking it's him, which they currently do. So he's trying to solve the case also. Everybody. And so he accuses her and she's like, no, it's not me, you stupid man. <laughs> but um, she and she gives some convincing reasons why. First of all, she enjoys, even though she could afford maybe a bigger house away from her father, the house she has now that she lives in with her father is the ideal life for her. Why would she want to move out of that? And then she gives him some other reasons. She's laughing at him. She's like, but... You know, you I mean, you're all right, continue though. to lunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've accused me of murder. What a lovely story <laughs> to tell our future <laughs> grandchildren. So anyway, they do. She does eventually get together with her and her, his pa, him and his pa, Ron Ritchie, Jason Ritchie get together and she's over and she notices a magazine, um, the Cooper Chase magazine. And she recognized someone who had been there in the 70s. And she pointed that out to Ron. So Ron. The magazine or the photo? The photo in the magazine. So she points that out to Ron. And Ron, of course, must tell Elizabeth. So Elizabeth heads over to her friend, Penny, at the nursing home to catch her up on the case. And as she's speaking with Penny, she asks John, do you remember a case that Penny worked on about a girl who was stabbed during a burglary? She bled to death in the arms of her boyfriend. Everyone knew it was the boyfriend, but they didn't find, they couldn't support the case. So the case was closed because it was considered a midday burglar had come in and stole something. 
while nobody believes that is the case, they feel strongly that the boyfriend killed him, but they couldn't charge him. Anyway, so Penny was one of the police officers who came to the home at the day of the incident. So she saw this um, man and the boyfriend fled from her police car and was never seen again. But Penny did see him again. Penny killed him. She took justice in her own hand. Mm-hmm. Very wrong. And it was revealed as she got sicker. So as she's going through her um, dementia, she starts to tell. She starts snitching on herself. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, John, John is her husband. She like, hey, can you pass me that pen? Hey, remember when I killed that man? What are we going to do about it? Me and you. <laughs> and he loved her so much. He like, I don't know, Penny. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure you'll think of something. Thank you for the pen. <laughs> so she's telling her stories, but then her stories turn into secrets, and now John doesn't know the truth. And so he's trying to protect his wife. And so John couldn't let the graveyard be dug up. He could not. So John killed Ian Ventham. Period. So basically, at this point in the story, you realize, oh, everyone's a murderer. Everyone is a murderer. Because all these two murders, Ian and then before Ian, Tony. Tony. Tony Curran. Mm -hmm. Who killed Tony? That's what we're getting ready to go into now. Oh. (laughs) Go ahead. You got it. Okay. So what happened to Tony Curran? Listen, the morning... Tony Curran died. Jason Ritchie receives the photograph in the mail that was found near Tony Curran's body. He's unsure why he received it or who he received it from. He decides that maybe it's from Tony and maybe Tony wants to blackmail him or something. So he decides he's going to go to Tony's house and ask him about it. And when he gets there, Tony doesn't answer. He assumes that Tony can see him on the security camera and doesn't want to speak to him. He rings the bell several more times and then he leaves. He didn't hear anything on the inside. So he didn't know if Tony was killed before or after he was present. That evening, though, he learns that Tony was found dead. Jason Ritchie did not kill Tony Curran. The boxer. He didn't kill nobody. Right. He didn't kill nobody. He didn't kill nobody. And he didn't figure out who killed anybody. Okay. He wasn't a detective. Listen. So then one day, Elizabeth is out late. Now, Bogdan, she had become friends with Bogdan. I mean, Bogdan, who was the guy that dug up the bones, he was hanging out with her husband, Stephen. You know, her husband would be home all the time and she'd be gone. They would come, he would come and play chess with her husband. So one day, Stephen and him are playing chess. And Stephen asks Bogdan, Can I ask you a question? You know, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's a little out there, but I just want to ask you. I just want to know. We're friends, Bogdan says. You can ask me anything. Okay. Well, forgive me if I'm speaking out of turn, but from everything I heard, I think you killed Tony Curran. <laughs> and Bogdan is like, Yeah, I did. You're right. 
<laughs> but this is so cute. I'm sorry. In the context of the novel, because Stephen, right, is being cared for by Elizabeth, his wife, yep. who is the clever yep. one. And yet there are two people in Elizabeth's life, the two people closest to her who have both outsmarted her. First, Penny who is basically comatose at this point, mm-hmm. but never told her she had killed somebody. Right. Um, and Elizabeth is like trying to figure out this murder and it was Penny all, all, the whole time. And then Penny's husband, Stephen, who is like not that far not, gone no. where he can't obviously tell Bogdan is the murderer and have a whole conversation about it over chess. <laughs> all very civilized. Very civilized. Very similar. Yeah, like you said, Biden's like, mm-hmm, it was me. And let me tell you all the details because, mm-hmm. you know, I like yeah. you. He said, it's a secret, though. <laughs> There's only one other person who knows. Steven says, mum's the word. <laughs> and then Elizabeth walks in and Steven just gives her a kiss and starts shaking like he losing it. <laughs> while he like winking at Biden like, oh, it's only me and you, bro. I know your secret. I go tell. So the reason Bogdan killed Tony was because Tony had his best friend killed. The best friend, Bogdan's best friend, was the taxi driver. And one day that taxi driver saw Tony shoot the drug dealer. Tony knew that he, the taxi driver saw him shoot the drug dealer. So Tony had him killed. So, of course, Bogdan blames Tony for requesting that his taxi driver friend get killed. And so he's going to pay. Bogdan arranged already for the person that actually killed his friend to die. He took care of that a long time ago. But he waited for the perfect opportunity to kill Tony. And his perfect opportunity was when he had the opportunity, when he was able to install the surveillance system in his home and he fitted everything up, but he didn't set it to record anything. And he made a key. And then was the right time. He killed him. The end. (laughs) Okay. You ready to take a break? Let's take a quick break, please. Okay, sounds good. back so that was the story Kari what is your final verdict and would you recommend the book so this book was um, a bit uh, difficult for me to follow uh, with the characters however I feel that Richard Osman gave each character life and like little telltale signs. So if you couldn't get the names right away, you knew them by their characteristics. You knew if someone was being clever, it was Elizabeth. Um, I like how he named Joyce's daughter Joanna. So you know that Joanna is always tied to Joyce. Little things like that um, to help you follow the characters through the book until it becomes like second nature. And you do uh, you have fully um, attached yourself to each character. Um, so I thought that was done really well. It got a little Perot-ish for me um, with all of the characters and with the twists and also with reveals that the reader isn't privy to. That's one of my biggest pet peeves in a mystery novel when um, the characters in the book know something I don't. Mm. That means I can never figure out who the killer is. 
Oh, you're not and okay it means with that. you can always no, because you can always just create like some um like some Dios ex machina at the end to conveniently put all the puzzle pieces together. And that's a little frustrating to me. I didn't read all of this to now be told, aha, it was something you never knew. Aha. It was a missing aha. piece. Yeah, I mean, I don't love that. However, I enjoyed this book. I felt like it was a book you could put down for weeks, pick up and enjoy just as you did weeks ago. And by that, I mean, it's not a page turner, but not every book has to be. It's just a nice, easy going afternoon on a Sunday. Um, very entertaining in its way. And and I thought that was um, very enjoyable. Especially we just had a blizzard here and reading that book while it was blizzarding outside, blizzarding, whatever. Um, <laughs> New word <laughs> with alert. With some tea <laughs> while it was snaining. <laughs> Go back to word by word, the dictionary episode for details on that. But um, to read this book, it was just in, it was just a delight. That's what I'll say. This book in one word, delightful. Um, and then it does touch on some more serious things. We didn't get into mm-hmm. it. Um, in the deep dive, but Donna needs these older people. She is kind of like stuck in life and they see right through her right through and they her. also provide her with the diversion she needs. And I think, um, yeah, those golden friends that we talked about in our theme, that's what they do. They help drag us out of the pits of despair that we find ourselves in when a love interest doesn't work out or when you have a falling out with a friend and they help put everything in perspective. Um, so I really liked those interactions. I thought Donna was going to get with Chris in the end, her partner. Uh, that didn't happen. And I kind of respect that too, because it would have been very, of course. Um, and so Richard Osmond decided not to go that route. So, you know, how badly do we need older people like um, in the context today? Uh, in the context of today who aren't politicians or people like that, uh, we need them very much and they can outsmart us and solve murder cases before the cops can. (laughs) And so that was cute. I would highly recommend it. What about you? Would you recommend this book? What's your final verdict? Okay. So um, let me just tell you what I didn't like. I did not like the plot twist for every murder. I didn't like it. It was too much for me. Yeah. That I was like, Talk more about that. What did you not like about these twists? I, the idea that's it's fine to think um, one person did it and kind of throw you off track like that. That was OK. Yeah. But then to have a whole story associated with each one of those people and not, you know, they had their own story and not that they. And for it not to mean a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, this book was very hard, very difficult to read. I, I struggled with it, as you could tell in my retelling. <laughs> no, no, you did I, um, it, it was a it was a struggle to read because of that. I, those plot twists were absolutely too much, and then I feel like, and I couldn't go back and find the character. But they introduced a new character in like chapter one hundred that sent me over mm-hmm. the roof. I was like, mm-hmm. how dare yeah, you? Yeah, when I'm already at. <laughs> When I'm already at 15 characters and you just bring in a 16 for real, I don't need that in my just life. because I don't need that in my life. Yeah. 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 I didn't like that. But the story of the priest and the nun touching. Yeah. But I didn't need it. And it's telling. Yeah. Oh. Unfortunately, I didn't need it. I, I didn't need it. It was touching. Yeah. There were a couple other stories in there. The story of Bernard. Bernard's story. I didn't need mm-hmm. Bernard's story. That's why I didn't tell it. Because I didn't need that in my life. Again, mm-hmm. another touching story, but it was extra. 
So those those um, plot twists and all the extra stories were absolutely too much for me. And and that could have a lot to do with my work situation and the load that I have. You know, I already have a lot on my mind, but reading this story mm-hmm. just wasn't the story that I needed to read right now. You know what I mean? But I did love the four main characters. They tickled me throughout the story. They tickled me throughout the story. I was tickled pink. I liked how Joyce told her, um, had her diary entries. I enjoyed that very much. I, I just laughed. I enjoyed it deeply. It was just really hard to read those plot twists and extra stories that had nothing to do, in my mind, nothing to do with the whole plot. You know, it reminds me of like ingredients that are really delicious. Like I love ice cream and I love uh, a Merlot wine and I love tomatoes. But if you put them all in the same dish, that's disgusting. (laughs) I do not want it. (laughs) And each character was great. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well-developed. And interesting. And and I felt like they were friends I want to have. But the story they were in, I did not need mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I agree with you there. Yeah. 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 But that. So you wouldn't recommend that? I, I, I go back and forth. For the characters, for the four characters, by all means, I, I love them a lot. I They were just so funny to me. And I chuckled really throughout the book. It's just when I got to that part about... um. Johnny, once they introduced Gianni, I was like done. And the gym. Just extra stuff for no reason. It's too late in the book for this. I'm tired already. So um, I don't know. I don't know if I can recommend it. I don't know. Well, you have to make a decision. Mm. I'm going to go with a no. I wouldn't recommend. Although (gasps) I recommended it a couple (laughs) weeks ago. Um, I take that recommendation recommendation back. Don't read it. So do but, I. Um, so do I. I think you'd be better off reading. Um, sorry. And then there were none mm-hmm. where it's the same idea where these multiple extremely characters. detailed mm-hmm. characters. But Agatha is telling you to pay attention, pay attention for a reason. And in every little fold crease look that the character gives, it's a clue for the reader. I felt. Yeah. So we've been through this already. Honestly, but, though, yeah. what I, I, I would say, it, it just could be that the timing for reading this book, because I like what you said, put it down and pick it up. Yeah, I might have been able to take that in. But just right now, my mind, this wasn't the book to read during my busy season at work. It just wasn't. <laughs> yeah. OK, I respect that. Well, Alexis, thank you for that deep dive into the Thursday Murder Club, a book you would not recommend today. <laughs> today not today sorry <laughs> but that you enjoy it just be like right. that sometimes so what are we reading next week alexis long bright river by liz moore and i think we have That's something right. special for you next week please stay tuned we have a very 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 special treat in next week's episode thank you all for listening to lit society we'll see you next thursday lit society is brought to you by alexis anaria and kari herrera support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us love y'all too love you you've enjoyed what you just heard tell a friend about lit society visit litsocietypod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter and until next time read, read something, something.